This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. So hello, Tina Koto Katoa, Ko Jen Olson Tokoingwa. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Jen Olson and this is the Environment Awareness Show brought to you by Extinction Rebellion Otapoti. Thanks for tuning in or listening to our podcast and don't forget to pass on the link. We want to spread the word about environment awareness and get everyone talking about what we can do to help reduce the climate and ecological crisis we're facing. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can contact us through our email, dunedin at extinctionrebellion.nz. Now, my guest today is Robert Guyton. Robert is well known in the South for his permaculture food forest in Riverton and his passionate defence of the environment at Environment Southland, Southland's Regional Council. Welcome, Robert. Oh, I watched the wonderful YouTube video of your garden recently, um, and our listeners can easily find that on YouTube, and and others for, from you and the Environment Centre. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in permaculture and gardening? Sure, I can. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me onto the programme. I appreciate that. Um, and also thanks for watching the, the video it was a. Um, it was designed to be a, a one take, no mistakes, uh, ramble around our forest garden, and it turned out that way. Um, we got had a very good cameraman lined up to um, follow me around and anticipate my every move, and he did extremely well. And it turns out that the the ramble lasted for over an hour, and by the end of it, I had a tired voice, but I certainly hadn't run out of things to say because oh. there's so much um, so much uh, of, of interest that's sort of embedded in, in the forest garden now because it's the result of, I suppose, about 30 years of um, working with permaculture, with organic growing, with, with basically with plants and thinking about what our relationship is or should be with plants. And, and I think about that in terms of, uh, in global terms, you know. So I'm sorry, I missed, I've forgotten now what your original question oh. was. Oh, well, look, I thought it was marvellous the way you sort of talked about the plants and, and how many of them you kind of knew, like, <laughs> like a personal relationship with the plants. Yeah, well, I do spend, a lot, I do spend a lot of time out there yeah. um, in the garden. And mainly it's, it's quite reflective time, really. I'm not doing a lot of work out there now because uh, it's a fairly mature forest garden now. so. A lot of the systems are self-replicating. They look after themselves. My um, role out there really now is quite um, heavily observation uh, and also perhaps even trying to create a dialogue um, between myself and the plants and, and, you know, the other entities that are out there in the garden, which is getting a little bit um, airy-fairy, I suppose, early on in an interview. But, But that's where... I've come to now in terms of um, uh, in terms of the forest garden, but also in terms of my reading and listening and watching about what's happening on the planet in terms of um, where humanity's gotten to um, and how we might perhaps unravel or or go through the issues that we've um, that we've created for ourselves and for everything else in the you know in the living environment. 
Well, yeah. I mean, certainly lots of people now are thinking about how we can re-establish our relationship with the natural environment and with the world around us. And yeah, because we've become we've become quite separated from that in a lot of ways. Well, look at both of us sitting in offices here and that, you know, talking across this technology. But I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as an inevitability. Humankind had to come to this point. But I think we're at a, at a point of um, great decision-making and great discernment right now, and we have to decide, do we carry on down this path? And I think we've gone a long way down it. We're pretty sophisticated now in terms of our technologies and our approach to understanding the material universe but I do think we've left behind some very important behaviours and principles that perhaps are still apparent in some of the um, first peoples and some of the indigenous nations or peoples of the world who haven't um, been lured down the path of, um, you know, uh, Newtonian physics and so on. Um, and while we might look back at them and think, oh, well, they haven't progressed at all, they also haven't destroyed their environment. But I think we've played our part in, in, risking, in risking everything. We've risked everything, our own uh, existence, but also the health and, and longevity of the, of the planet itself, or at least the life forms that live in and around it. So I think this is a really great time for humans now, and I think this is what is happening on mass, really, right across all the different spheres of interest, that people are thinking, well, everybody can sense now that it's a, a something of an end game and we're, we're toward that end of it, the pointy end of it, and that we need to do something. And people are wondering, what do we do? You know, where are the models? Where are the, where are the wise people? Where are the, um, you know, where's the path now? And for me, um, it's a combination of everything we've learned so far, we've learned how not to do a lot of things, um, but we're looking now to guidance, I suppose, and we can look to those, uh, you know, those old um, forest-based civilizations, not civilizations at all, forest-based uh, peoples and see what their wisdom is, or we can look directly to, from my point of view, to the trees and to the forests, spend time in them, and just see if we can hear what they're saying or see if we can be part of that dialogue. Not so much work out the patterns or this, you know, permaculture talks about assessing your wild environment, your natural environment and taking patterns and behaviours from there. But I wonder if we're, we're even, we've done that and there's been some terrific work done that's moved, um, moved us forward a lot as far as uh, our relationship with the, the plant world is concerned and with food production. But I wonder if the next uh, step is just simply to establish a dialogue and wait and see what comes through. Wow, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's actually so difficult for us is actually addressing so much of the damage that has happened to the natural environment because we're, we're not working with um, a healthy environment to start with a lot of the time um, I don't know how long it's taken you to establish your your place at Riverton there but um, I should imagine it took some time to kind of bring the health back 
um, to well, that environment. I know, I know what you mean about a degraded environment because I've talked about that myself before, but I see it a little bit different, differently now. Mm -hmm. I see our whole environment right, right across everywhere. Signs of humanity's behaviour and activities are everywhere, you know, from nanoplastics um, forming the new ocean beds. You know, it's just everywhere. I don't necessarily see that as a problem. I see it as the base from which we now must work because attempts to clean it up are going to be, uh, they're going to take a long time if, if that's what we choose to do. But I don't think we should beat ourselves up over it too much. We should get on with the job of assessing what we have now and what we can do from this point on. I don't think we can afford to waste the energy that it takes flagellating ourselves and punishment um, because I don't think that the forests and the seas and so on and the creatures that live in them can, they're not that patient. I think that they are well as aware as we are that um, now is the time. And, but, but we've learned a lot. And I think that um, progress that we've made in areas like permaculture, I mean, there are a lot of different approaches to this, but the permaculture one um, was a path that I took, and that's flowered and opened up now. Um, I think I'm really confident that for anybody wanting, maybe despairing or feeling lost or confused, spend some time uh, in a forest if you can, without any great expectations of um, inspiration. But I think that's where inspiration lies. And really just being out of doors much more than we are now. Yeah, well, that sort of takes me back to to my first question, Robert. That was, I mean, what was it that first brought you to permaculture and um, interested you in that as an idea? I think I was very fortunate uh, in that as a young boy, not, I don't know why this is, but a couple of things happened. One was um, I used to take a shortcut through, a, I guess it was considered wasteland in order to get from our house to the to the township, um, I think. I mean, I'm sure that property was owned by someone. Um, there was an old house on there, and there was someone living in there that I never saw them. But I used to work, walk through. I guess it was the remains of their orchard, which they had had no attention at all, even grazing or certainly no mowing, for a long, long time. It was fully overgrown, uh, and to my eye, seemed very wild. In fact, it had um, quite significant uh, bunch of, or clumps of uh, flag irises growing up through the long grass underneath what were probably um, apple trees. And while I didn't really have an opinion about that, I certainly loved being in it. Something about its atmosphere really captured me, and that served as my unconscious or even conscious model for uh, orcharding or forest gardening or having a, a grown environment that produces not only food but also medicines, materials, you know, the Māori term is mahinga, mahinga kai or mahika kai, they say down here. And I guess so, I was very fortunate in that. And also when I was a child, again, I don't know why, but I took on the restoration of a, a very badly degraded creek that ran through the bottom of our property. And I, would, um, I was scooping mud out of it. I was uh, cutting brambles and, you know, it was... All it had living in it, it seemed to me, was planera, little flatworms crawling across the surface. 
of the mud. But over a you know, period of years, I managed to make great changes in there and it cleared up and it grew various things that I planted. And that was my model. So I wasn't really inspired at any stage by anybody else's words or work. It was just those actual interfacing with um, with degraded landscapes or landscapes that had a little bit of wildness about them at least that um, tipped me over the edge, I think. But then, of course, I did take note of um, the literature and met a lot of people who were involved in organic growing, in vegetable gardening and community forest gardening and community gardening uh, and in permaculture and added those into my list of, of influen- influences and influencers. And so now this is where I've ended up. Oh, wow, yeah. So so a lot of it did actually spring from sort of your personal contact with... Very much so. If you like, yeah. And that's why I think it's so important and also slightly tragic that when I look at um, young people nowadays, you know, new entrants or early school-aged children in the towns and cities... Um, that they're, they're being so divorced from opportunities like mm. I had. Maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe they are hanging around waste areas and they're getting the same experience that I was, but I am a wee bit concerned about time spent in front of devices and screens. But again, there may be some big advantage to that that, that I haven't really fathomed yet, but I do think it's important that opportunities are made for children to spend time, reflective time, in wild spaces or even semi-wild spaces because there aren't that many wild spaces available to city or even towns children or even rural children um, nowadays. So it's not going to be perfect, but maybe it doesn't need to be. Humans, particularly children, are very adaptable. And at that, in those early years, children still seem to be fully um, possessing of their imagination. And I do think that Human imagination is the key to inspiration and to recognising um, where beautiful spaces are and where beautiful spaces can be and how to create them yourselves. And I think from here on in, uh, and for a while already, humans are the answer really to, to getting these things back or to getting a new amalgam of uh, degraded spaces back into um, spaces that provide opportunities for all sorts of entities, um, living creatures, uh, to live in. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've found that a lot of children, or most children, are really interested in, um, they are really interested in nature and other creatures and the world around them. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think it, it is really good to encourage them to do that. I know myself as a child, I was brought up in a rural area in the UK. Um, it was a farmed area. So there was very, was very little, I mean, in the UK, there is very little natural land at all because all the land has been modified. But even so, you know, there was still lots of um, lots of natural processes that you observed throughout the year and wild creatures living there. Yeah, I always find that very interesting. Yeah, no, I, I feel for what you're saying, I really do. One of the models that um, I really hold to uh, in terms of forest gardening or any of these 
um, ways of, of growing and, and you know producing food and so on is the um, is the British uh, hedgerow. Mm. For me, uh, our forest garden at Riverton really is just a very wide hedgerow, a wide, short hedgerow. That's how I regard it because, I mean, unless it's very, very large, it can't really be called a forest in actual fact. But mm-hmm. the hedgerow model, hedgerows talk, I think, talk about complexity, multiplicity, um, three-dimensionality, vines, ground cover, fruit for humans, fruit for birds, and so on. And I think it's a beautiful model, and it's one that is not strongly uh, known about or held in New Zealand because we're such a new, raw, rough country. But I see it as a, you know, if that hedgerow model was adopted in lots of different ways, it could be applied. I can imagine, as Bob Crowder once did, um, the Canterbury Plains crisscrossed with networks of, of hedgerows yes. that you can walk along and harbour and forage from and that would stop the wind blowing and hold the soil and places where beetles could live for natural pest management and so on. I, I think the answer to our problems is not difficult. Doing it's difficult, but envisaging it is not difficult. The models are already there, back in time mm-hmm. usually and in other parts of the world perhaps. But nowadays we've got such access to information, uh, you know, the World Wide Web. We just need to hook into the Wood Wide Web as well, bring those two things together, and then we'll be, then I think we'll be fulfilling our role. Um, maybe as kaitiaki or maybe some other term will be found that describes better what our role is. And I honestly believe we have a valid role or the planet wouldn't have thrown us up to, to become what we are. We wouldn't have developed a brain the size that we have or opposable thumbs or all those things that make us human. Well, I do, yes, our role as, as kaitiaki or guardians, I think, is a is a, a really lovely concept. And that, um, go back to the hedgerows idea, that that's something that we can all think about, our own little patch which is like a refuge for um, the wild parts of, of yeah, nature, yeah. if you yeah. like. You know, yeah. I, I like to envisage my little my little garden here um, on the peninsula. Yeah, no, very like that. As though we're all nodes of, of a system. And maybe that system, like mycorrhizal fungi, actually travels under the ground and then re-emerges at each of these, like my gardens connected to your gardens. Do you know that there's a very interesting uh, network or movement called We Are The Ark? Do you know about The Ark? Not only in Britain, but certainly through other countries as well. And to to become one of these arcs, which essentially are, you know, refuges for, for wildlife, particularly where the owner of the property has to start from scratch, mm. you know, even building on old tarmac or whatever it is. It's a very popular um, new way to look at that. And they see themselves as connected, maybe not through a mycorrhizal network, but through a kind of a fraternity or sorority, mm. um, whereby they all label their properties as this is an arc. Um, and, and they make their own signs. But And then they have a, they have a website that they post photographs of their ark sign and their property and everybody rejoices in the fact that this is 
a phenomenon that's spreading throughout the world. And I mean, you know, there could be any number of those kinds of initiatives which could make a huge difference, given that we really need to attend to our towns and cities and the green spaces they can become if only each individual living in those cities does something so simple as that. Yeah. Oh, well, look, should we, um, should we have a little break and, and listen to a piece of music that you've chosen, Robert? I would enjoy that. Yeah, it's uh, The Spider and I by Brian Eno. Thank you. Hey Robert, what I what I'd really like to ask you about as well, while we've got time, um, is if you could tell us a bit about the Environment Centre in Southland um, and the Longwood Loop. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Well, the Environment Centre has a very good website at um, www.scs.org.nz, so people could have a look. They'll easily find things of interest. But the, the, the important issue that's happening right at the moment, the live issue, is the creation of the Longwood Loop which is a loop serviced by an electric vehicle, uh, a van, which is going to carry goods produced by people around the loop to each other several times a week. Um, It's a way of creating a kind of a live moving farmer's market. It's for local people, local goods, and it bypasses this whole um, supermarket network and the issues that come with that. And it also provides resilience, Um, for the Southland community and a chance for people to move into the area knowing that they can produce and sell thanks to this Longwood Loop electric vehicle. And we're looking for funds for it. We've got three quarters of what we need already, but we'd love um, other contributions through the Pledge Me uh, network, which if people were thought that this was a wonderful idea, they could look on the uh, Environment Centre's website, see the details of it, or just go straight to Pledge Me 
and put uh, and search out Longwood Loop. It's going very well, the campaign, and it's the most worthwhile thing uh, I can imagine happening at the moment. It involves a community that really needs assistance, and it's an idea that well, could be used, multiplied right out through the country. It really is a marvellous initiative. Yeah, I mean, and, and I th- it looks like the Environment Centre is a really lovely place too. I haven't been. I, I really must. Oh, oh no, look, it's yeah. just, just it's wonderful. It's inspirational in there. The nicest thing about it are the wonderful people who mm-hmm. are um, volunteering there or running the centre. It really is, yeah, it's a lovely space. Yeah, and it just brings together the community to share ideas and... Um, yeah, and practical, and there's lots of practical ideas as well for people um, yes. who aren't in the area that they can have a look at what they might do. We get a lot of visitors there. We get a lot of visitors to our forest garden as well. That's really a spring and summertime activity. Um, so yeah. if people want to come and have a look at our forest garden, they're most welcome. And the best way is to is to book through the Environment Centre in Riverton. Okay. Yeah, well, I, um, I'm not sure how much more time we've got, actually, but I wanted to ask you, one minute, I'm told, um, you grow a lot of things down there, Robert, that I never thought would even grow in Southland. I've but got bananas. Bananas growing at the moment. Tiruwaya, yeah. I've got um, ginger, I've got grapes and kiwi fruit out of doors, but um, we'll see. The climate's changing and we're taking the opportunity to try everything we possibly can. Oh, yeah. So thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been really interesting and I, I hope we've inspired some of our listeners. Um, been saying Thanks that. very much, Jean. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.